Clyde, and you're tuned into Drone Encoded, the podcast where I nerd the hell out about animated media of all kinds. Deep diving into a range of specific topics, I said diving weird there. Uh, you know, talking shows, movies, fan theories, which is what we're doing today, um, specific creators, studios, characters, art styles, whatever the works. Today, like I said, we're discussing a fan theory about Over the Garden Wall, a show that deserves a rewatch every single spooky season and is maybe my favorite miniseries of all time. Uh, I, I'm not sure. There might be like a one season anime that's up there that kind of counts like FLCL, but yeah, point is it's up there. Now, most people who imbibe in over the garden wall theorizing seem to think that it's supposed to be based on some kind of purgatory, which is fair enough. I mean, I feel like we all agree that it's some kind of afterlife waiting station at least. But another theory in the vein has steadily gained steam over like the last seven-ish years. The first mention I've seen of the theory is from Tumblr user Globe Gander's 2014 essay post. And, well, what I see is as is a different part of the first self-insert fanfic in literature history. Possibly. Who knows? Maybe Homer had a thing for his mom. And Gilgamesh doesn't count. He didn't write that. But... What I'm talking about is the first of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy Trilogy, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, as in hell, which kind of makes it even more of an essential spooky season watch, to be honest. I mean, it would make it a cartoon about hell. I I don't know anything spookier. Like, when I was introduced to this theory, I was very, very excited because it makes so much sense and it's such a dense theory the more you think on it the more you find and if there is one book that i'm an enormous nerd for it's the divine comedy i think it's just such a timeless incredibly written classic like every era you can sort of like identify it with some contemporary kind of writing style like it's very it reads very fanfic like today it's incredibly fan fiction like there's like his crush looking down on him from heaven to help him out he has his hero guiding him on the journey in um, Virgil and he, he he keeps talking to like important historical figures that he admires and have them like tell him how, what a great writer he is it's 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 pretty funny how how fan fiction like it is but like a lot of fan fiction, n- not all of them are bad. Some fan fiction is really well written, and this is a very well written fan fiction, and it has like such wildly imaginative world building, and that it makes me th- feel like it's worth it, no matter your religion or feelings on Christianity. It's like it's just a plain old great story. Like don't get me wrong, it has a lot of flaws, <laughs> like hella flaws, <laughs> hella, hella. I didn't mean that. Let me focus. But it's it's flawed in like very specifically the ways that Dante himself is flawed as a person. And I kind of like that. And a lot of the same can be said for Over the Garden Wall. Well, the compliments, not the flaws. It's kind of pretty flawless, to be honest. I, I love it. Like, love it. It's my child. I want to... I, I wanted to grow up to be a big, strong boy. It's it's so funny and brilliantly written and hilarious and high concept and easily one of the bravest things Cartoon Network has ever done. Like very quick refresh on the show, it's about the awkward, pessimistic, stubborn Dante I mean Worth and his friendly, idealistic, wildly inter- inattentive half brother Virgil I mean Greg, who are lost in a mysterious spooky forest and are trying to find their way home as they encounter, uh, how do you describe it, weird weirdos, creepy creeps, odd oddities, all while being stalked by the beast.
Now, Dante's Inferno is part of a trilogy of long narrative poems, the others being Purgatorio and Paradiso. They follow what I mean Dante, as he, guided by Greg I mean Virgil, and Beatrice I mean, oh wait, that actually stays the same, as they tour through hell, purgatory, and then heaven. In Inferno, the one that matters most for our purposes today, Dante wakes up in a mysterious spooky forest, huh, 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 huh? And they, um, and then he encounters his guide Virgil, who proceeds to guide him through the nine circles of hell, each inhabited by different kinds of sinners, punished differently according to these sins. Now, before we get into the specifics of the symbolic parallels between the characters and the settings, and like the deeper symbolism of each part of the narratives. I want to talk about the type or like the genre-ish of them both as the parallels begin to take shape there already and it kind of sets the scene for and gives a bit more context for the rest of these comparisons. Okay, now in terms of genre, Over the Garden Wall is very much a clear pastiche of old fairy tales. You know, two kids lost in the wood. They try to save a fair maiden from a scary evil guardian. There's a whole bunch of examples. There's also like a distinct model to most of the episodes. Like don't judge things by appearances is especially driven home a few times. Um, the character designs are also very Fletcher cartoonsy and early Disney-like. And the backgrounds reminiscent of Brothers Grimm's illustrations and Grisel art, which is often used for fairy tales. Today, of course, we think of Disney princess movies when we think of fairy tales, but Over the Garden Wall seems to pay tribute more to the source material. Like, they usually have the darker, more twisted kind of stories. Think like Hans Christian Andersen or The Brothers Grimm. And maybe because of this, the story and setting feel like a fusion of gothic and romantic literary movement elements. Something that these fairy tales did often flirt with, a lot of them coming up in a contemporary era to it. And that's not romantic as in kissy kissy genre, it's romantic as in the literary era, like with like chivalry and the spirit of adventure and love of nature and stuff. Gothic still basically means the same thing as it does today though, so don't worry about that. Um, there would often be a veneration for nature in these fairy tales that's found in romantic work a lot and also like a careful fear of its sublimity and insurmountability which is found in gothic work a lot. Uh, it would also often be set in gothic, um, like in old castles and stuff which is a gothic fiction hallmark and something that happens a fair bit uh, in romantic literature also. These fairy tales would often be um, like set in the past from the perspective of the era and the era would be like about the 1800s to 1850s when a lot of them were written so they would usually be um, set in medieval times which is also a romantic literature obsession and over the garden wall plays heavily on these commonalities but also employs elements of romantic and gothic work that are very rarely seen or at least specified in these fairy tales sort of being built more like a fusion of gothic and romantic work that uses the fairy tale commonalities to hold them together like like how onions bring flavors together in a dish you know what i mean um you might be thinking what does any of that have to do with dante's inferno what the hell bruh <laughs> what the hell hell <laughs> Like, because the book came out 500 years ago, before any of the genres even started forming, but I do have you covered, because, um, you see, while Over the Garden Wall is very influenced by Gothic and Romantic literature, Dante's Inferno and the whole Divine Comedy trilogy really is a heavy inspiration and influence on Gothic and Romantic literature, even if often indirectly so. Both Inferno and Over the Garden Wall are very preoccupied with the past, which is customary with romantic literature. Um, 
over the garden wall has its residence like strewn about ages from like the early 20th century to like the Victorian era. Inferno is highly referential of classical Greek and Roman pantheons. King Minos is the sorting hat of hell for some reason. Dante is guided by a first century poet who is his hero in the shape of Virgil. There's harpies in the seventh circle. Like all five of um, the Hellenic underworld's rivers show up here. Acheron, Styx, Phlegathon, Cocytus, and Leith. So yeah, that happens a lot. There's also centaurs. Both works also feature a protagonist going through a physical and like psycho-spiritual sort of journey, which is a hallmark of gothic storytelling. Not necessarily in the sense of traveling though. I mean, it's that a lot of the time, but more that they go through stuff it's like a very transitionary period outside of their body but also their mind like maybe they started a new career or moved or something but both Wirt and Dante are going through the very literal kind of journey Dante to the center of hell to be able to get to purgatory and then heaven and then Wirt traveling to um, Adelaide to find his way home both of these journeys are also reflective of journeys like within the Divine Comedy is an allegory for the rejection and recognition of sin, which is Inferno, the repentant life to live thereafter, which is Purgatory, and then the soul's ascent to God, which is um, Heaven. In Over the Garden Wall, Wirt is learning to recognize his personal faults and work on them, which is actually a glaring thematic parallel to the Inferno part of the Divine Comedy's allegory. Um, Wirt struggles to recognize his sins or faults and the show reflects his journey on this path of recognition and his rejection of it eventually which is best su- summarized when Beatrice's mom says you're not much good to Greg dead and he responds with I was never much good to him alive either before he goes off and saves his brother and this shows that he recognized his selfish poor treatment of his brother and the way that he always blamed him for anything and everything and his willingness to reject this to do something about it. There's the veneration of the beauty and scale and fear of the ominousness and incomprehensibility of the natural setting which sort of reminds us that we're not very significant compared to like the mesmerizing ferocity and unknowableness of nature ha, unknowableness like the unknown that was unintentional both of those things though are a very large part of what makes romantic and gothic literature romantic and gothic I mean I don't think I need to explain much how this applies to the actual literal hell and like Dante isn't just shocked by the horrors of the landscape but the language he uses in Inferno is a lot of the time very lovingly descriptive with Dante careful to make us understand how it's not just terrifying but impressive in its functionality and sheer might. The unknown in Over the Garden Wall is also like just such a fantastic encapsulation of the gothic and romantic sublime nature of nature. The unknown is, well, yeah, like I was, like I accidentally said earlier, unknowable. They don't know how they got there, or how to get back, or why there's skeleton people, or anything really, and there's danger at every turn. It's a scary journey. There's another blatant parallel between these works that the strong romantic and gothic tendencies expose, but... If I'm gonna talk about that, I might as well just like get into the characters and the lay of the land before I get into the very startling narrative parallels. They're not all like a one-to-one exact replica of the characters in the show, but there's a lot of similarity in the symbolism and especially how they function within the story. Okay, so first of all, with Dante and Wirt, funny red hats. Funny red hats. They both have funny red hats. I rest my case. This has been drawn and quoted. Peace. Okay, okay, okay. 
<laughs> what I was saying before about the parallels that the gothic and romantic tendencies expose is um, that our boys are both Byronic heroes. It's not like an ironic bisexual hero. It's like the romantic era heroic trope. They're these mysterious, wounded, self-flagellating, brooding, arrogant guys, relentless in revenge, yet capable of deep love and affection. They're generally portrayed as incredibly attractive to the ladies also. It's a very attractive trope apparently because it just doesn't stop showing up in modern fiction to the point that the trope is a bit of a joke. I mean, it's everyone from Batman to Edward Cullen, who is our new Batman, to Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, to Bojack Horseman, to Catra. It's everywhere, bruh. It's everywhere. And it's frankly startling how neatly Dante Alighieri's depiction of himself fits into this archetype that would only be created in earnest four whole centuries later. And he and Wirt are both very comparable, especially in the ways they fit this archetype. They're both very prideful, like really prideful. Dante proclaims himself as one of the all-time great poets frequently and just implies his brilliance constantly throughout the Divine Comedy. He goes on and on and on about how the people of Florence exiled him. He wrote the whole Divine Comedy in exile and was very clearly so about it, by the way. And like it goes on and on about how they just did it because they were scared of his big, big brain. It honestly gets a bit exhausting and sad and you're almost like, Damn Durante, maybe you got exiled because they got sick of your whiny rants. Now, Wirt might be a more awkward and outwardly insecure than the average Byronic hero, but the bedrock of this trope and what's always made it so compelling is the way that the conflict between the arrogance and the insecurities like take center stage a lot of the time, which is something we all have a bit of within us, but it doesn't become our whole personality. And, well, Wirt is definitely an arrogant little brat also. He's actually this really brilliant depiction of that very specific kind of obnoxious teenage arrogance. You know that rage at, at being infantilized that makes you sort of feel like to impose your adulthood you need to infantilize anyone you can get away with infantilizing? You, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, he frequently shoots down other people's ideas, usually without ever offering up any kind of alternative or a better one at least, and just goes along with what they say anyway. He's constantly berating Beatrice and especially Greg denying the brilliant moments our sweet little boy has and blaming him for them being there when the easiest way to get to hell in Christian ideology is to have personal faults that you refuse to acknowledge. And if he's not doing that, he's just stubbornly refusing to admit he was wrong, straight up. And for that matter, they're both pretty damn stubborn too, with Dante often needing to be confronted with the horrors of hell very viscerally before changing his mind on something. And that's like his whole arc, like every chapter of Dante's Inferno is something to that effect really. Um, they're also both very into the arts, as Byronic heroes tend to be. Dante is of course a gifted poet and writer who doesn't shut up about how gifted a poet and writer he is, and was very instrumental in the formalization of Italian as a literary language, weirdly. And Wirt is a gifted oboist and a less gifted poet, but he tries. He's also able to distinguish between different styles of interior design decor, as seen in that great bit in the fifth episode where he realizes the room they're in is in French Rococo style instead of Quincy's Georgian sensibilities. Both of them are also wounded in ways that greatly affect their outlooks and personalities, which is also a big hallmark of Byronic heroes. Think Batman, Bojack Horseman. Uh, Dante, of course, is incredibly defined by his exile from his home and the hurt it caused him. Like I said, dude does not shut up about it. And there's also his great love for Beatrice, who he'd known since he was nine, which never fully came to be as they both married other people. He did maintain that she was his one true love throughout his life and was content to love her from afar and he valorized her in his works, most notably the new life, 
which was a text of prose and verse that meditated heavily on Courtney Love. Courtly Love. I just said the whole front woman. Like, courtly love. Like, courting a person. That kind of love. In an attempt to, like, elevate courtly love. Courtly love. <laughs> to sacred, pure love. So, yeah. Um... Beatrice also plays a major part in the Divine Comedy as a heavenly spirit being the one to guide um, him through heaven and also call upon Virgil to guide him through hell and purgatory. Mm, Wirt also has a special torch for a lady, um, Sarah, who he struggles to show his affection for and loves from afar mostly due to the interest of another man in her, which compounds his insecurity about whether he's cool enough for her. And starts the show very visibly distraught by it and he writes a poetry and music so that's that's pretty similar uh, he also views Greg as a hindrance with his innocence kind of butting into his socializing flow or so he says the reality is he's overcome with fear of making a fool of himself and might kind of even resent how free Greg is like, either way, the spite comes out in his personality frequently. Dante and Wirt are also both referred to as pilgrims and are traveling through the unknown slash hell to get home, which isn't really a Byronic hero thing, but it's still a fairly gothic romantic trope and a clear parallel. Now, in true self-insert fanfic style, Dante paired himself up with someone that he stands as his guide the ancient Roman poet Virgil, who he keeps referring to as master, so you just know he stands him. And Virgil is fairly easily identifiable with Greg, even if worse feelings on Greg are like completely opposite, because a key difference between Wirt and Dante is that Dante views the journey through hell as part of his life's purpose, while Wirt is a reluctant whiny little... I can't think of a replacement for a cuss word here, so just imagine I said one. Virgil is portrayed as this virtuous pagan, a pure, kind soul whose only sin was not knowing Christ and accepting him in life, so lives in the first circle of hell, Dumbo. By the way, that is only true because he was born before Christ. Do you know how messed up that is? I'm not going to get into it, but wow. Uh, Greg is similarly pure, but um, and also just as the ignorance that wasn't Virgil's fault cause him to be punished, Greg gets into quite a few sticky situations purely from like just being an ignorant kid, which is never really a kid's fault, they just haven't had the opportunity to like learn things yet. Greg's inattentive nature does seem to spur him on even sometimes, and very often leads both Wirt and Beatrice along the path, although admittedly by accident. Beatrice is a bit of an odd character to dissect, because she has two character parallels in Over the Garden Wall. See this Sarah, the object of Wirt's affection, and Beatrice the Bluebird. I do think that this makes sense though, as Beatrice of the Divine Comedy fulfilled two roles, one as a guide and one as the object of Dante's forlorn love. Uh, Beatrice is this very idealized, flat, picturesque figure as Dante's love, which is seen in his fixation on her beauty and kind of this lack of focus on her inner thoughts, which makes it seem like a familiarly one-sided, maybe even slightly Arthur Flecky preoccupation. Wirt is a lot closer in a sense of equal footing with Sarah, but his fear and insecurity prevents him from getting too close and he very clearly idolizes her by way of making himself feel like he's not good enough for her. Beatrice as a guide, however, is a more well thought out functional character who understood exactly what was needed for Dante to be able to complete his journey the way she and indeed God intended. Beatrice the Bluebird is of course on a path to betray the children for her own benefit but she's also similarly cleverly functional in getting them where she intended to and her remorse for leading the boys to Adelaide also mirrors Dante's Beatrice's remorse for how she left Dante on Earth. And just as Dante's Beatrice makes a plan to help him in her, his hour of need, 
But it's also worth noting both Beatrices are transformed into winged beings, a celestial spirit and a bluebird. And the bluebird's journey to become a person could be seen as a parallel to Dante's Beatrice reconnecting with what made her human through him. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but... Eh. Okay, now let's talk about Satan and the Beast. Like, we only ever really get glimpses of the Beast, but like, he's pretty clearly a parallel for the Devil, right? I mean, first of all, he's literally called the Beast. Like, like Satan, the Beast. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> then there's the horns. I mean, I know Bible-style Satan doesn't canonically have horns, but tell that to literally every single depiction in art of him ever. Strictly speaking, the beast doesn't have horns either, really, but branches coming out of his head. But, like, those are clearly modeled after stag-style horns also. There's also the whole desire to eat souls and his deal with the woodsman. Like, have you ever heard of a deal with the devil, buddy? The cost is usually souls. Now, it's easy to look at the beast and his sprawling horn-like branches and thirst for human suffering and go, yeah, it's just the devil, that's it, come on. And sure, he is the devil, I think, at least. But also, I think the beast represents more than that. When the woodsman describes the beast at the end of the first episode, he says, wait, let me try the voice, uh, the beast cannot be mollified like some farmer's pet. He stalks like the night. He sings like the four winds. He is the death of hope. And in this, this inscription to the entrance of hell that reads in like one translation like, Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into eternal pain. Through me amongst the people lost for I. Just as the founder of my fabric moved, to rear me was the task of power divine, supremest wisdom and primeval love. Before me things create were none, save things eternal, and eternal I endure. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Now, the whole phraseology of the two gives like the same sense of impending doom, but the last lines of both is what really struck me in this similarity here. Like, he is the death of hope, and that famous line, um, Abandon all hope, ye who enter. The latter is a reference to hell being a place of endless hopelessness, so calling the beast himself the death of hope implies that he's not just the devil, but a manifestation, a personification of hell. And expanding from there, you could very reasonably argue that Satan himself is also a manifestation of evil and, by extension, hell itself, which would mean that the beast is also a manifestation of evil. And this is seen in the suggestion throughout the series that everyone has the burden to bear in the unknown. Not necessarily everyone is evil, but that would be a pretty reductive black and white way of looking at it for a modern show anyway. It's more everyone has their flaws however and the beast seems terrified of people of the unknown realizing that they can overcome them. He feeds on and is a manifestation of their doubt and the fruit that he so wants to sow is hopelessness. Moving on from that morbidity Let's get into the narrative parallels. So, I'm sure you've heard of the Nine Circles of Hell at least vaguely at some point. And the episodes kind of more or less respond to um, the Nine Circles. They, need, they line up fairly neatly even. Not always, but for a big portion of it. Now, there are ten episodes, but Dante's story doesn't start off in the first circle of hell. It starts off in the outskirts of it, and this seems to be what the first episode explores. So, the parallels start out pretty freaking glaringly. Inferno starts with Dante waking up in a forest, described as thick and eerily dark, and confused by how he got there, pretty understandably scared and out of it. 
Over the Garden Wars first cha- chapter, the old gristmill starts with Wirt and Greg walking through a dark and eerie forest, so thick the night sky is invisible, and Wirt realizing he doesn't even understand how they got there, and that they're lost and starts freaking out. Now, in the forest in Inferno, Virgil comes to Dante's aid and calmly guides him and tries to calm down the panicky Dante and feel these questions like, where are we? What's going on? Why is my ancient dead hero here? And Greg is with Wirt the whole time, but acts similarly calm and assured. Like when Wirt asks where they're going and starts freaking out, Greg is really calm and is all like, we're walking home, duh. And seems really sure that their path will lead them there. And when Wirt slaps himself in disbelief and asks what the heck is going on when he sees a talking bird, Greg hilariously just goes, well, you're slapping yourself and I'm answering your question and before he's interrupted. And yeah, Beatrice the bird makes a quick cameo in the episode of the show to guide them on the path out of the forest, but then leaves, just as Beatrice the angel did when Virgil recounts her sending him to Dante's aid. In Dante's Inferno, um, Dante is led to safety by Virgil after being chased by three beasts. A lion that represents pride, a leopard that represents lust, and a starved-looking she-wolf that that is described as really starved no matter how much she eats, and it represents avarice or greed. There's a giant scary beast in this Over the Garden War episode 2 who looks like a wolf that just wants more and more candy the more it gets from Greg. So yeah, that's a pretty damning connection. Greg is even the one that saves them from the beast and turns him into a dog, just like for with Virgil and Dante. Um, the end of the episode has the woodsman put the fear of death back into the kids with his little diatribe on the beast that mirrors the inscription at the end of the forest on the outskirts of hell. I already read both of them, so I'm not going to do it again. But it's also worth noting that once... Dante and Virgil get past that sign, they still have to cross the river of Acheron before they get to the first circle and then walk for a while. Because at the very end of this episode, we see Wirt and Greg cross a stream and walk on into the night as a town is up ahead. Okay, so let me tell you a bit about the first circle, Limbo. Limbo is where anyone who was a good person but was born before Christ goes in this fanfiction version of hell, or anyone good who didn't follow like the weird Catholic admin stuff, like getting baptized or whatever. But don't worry, they don't get punished too severely for it. Limbo is sort of metaphorically drained of color, like an off heaven. It's a nice enough place, but not like somewhere you want to spend like eternally. It's basically Goodwood or like Ohio, but you have to stay there forever and ever and ever, which would be pretty bad for me. <laughs> the rest of hell is filled with screaming, but the circle is filled with sighs. It's supposed to be symbolic of the meaninglessness and emptiness of a life without Christ. Uh, near the end of the circle, you come across an enormous King Minus from Greek mythology who makes you confess all your bad deeds and then flings you to your proper specific doom, like three-pointer style, I don't know. Now in chapter two, Hard Times for Huskin, Hard Times at the Huskin Bee, yeah, that's the episode's name. When Wirt and Greg first enter the town of Pottsfield, everything feels empty in a much more literal sense. There's this eerie sense that it's a ghost town, even before you find out just how close to the truth that really is. Um, when they do eventually find the townspeople, uh, Beatrice keeps talking about how something feels off about them and the place, even if they seem nice enough, mirroring how Limbo is a nice enough place but just a bit off. The people of Pottsfield also take issue with people leaving because it's a place you come to, not leave, just as Limbo isn't a place you can leave unless you're Virgil and have divine mission from God to, gu- to guide Dante. Most glaringly though is the enormous like 6 meter tall pumpkin squid guy 
Enoch, who appears to be the town's leader and refuses to let the kids go until they are punished for their transgressions, basically casting judgment upon them like King Minos who decides which circle of hell you belong in. Worth considers staying in the town even, because even though it's not his home, where he wants to get to, it's a peaceful town with a simple knife, uh, with a simple knife, with a simple life. And it's not especially wonderful, but it's not that bad, and it feels pretty similar to the kind of place Limbo is supposed to be. You know, it's not heaven, but it's I. The second circle of hell is lust and it finds Dante and Virgil looking on as people are swept up in a hurricane-like wind, being thrashed about against rocks and back or spinning up in the air mercilessly and it's supposed to be re representative of how the people of the circle were swept up in their passions, unable to control themselves. Chapter 3 of Over the Garden Wall, Schooltown Follies opens with Beatrice berating Wirt for just being a pushover and when he's mistaken for a school student uses the opportunity to irritate Beatrice by simply going with it and mockingly going I'm sorry I have to stay in class can't hear you over the sound of me doing whatever this teacher says because I'm a pushover basically he just goes wherever the wind blows him huh wind anyone and he gets swept up by the passions of his stubborn streak and sidetracks the journey just to prove a point. Greg is told by Beatrice that the world is a terrible place and sets out to do his part to make the world better by having fun, but soon finds that mindlessly having fun, which you could interpret as also getting swept up by passions, has its consequences and when his potatoes and molasses song gets the whole school sent to bed early and the musical instruments taken away from them. Um, there's also the more direct parallel of Miss Langtree's man's Jimmy Brown apparently cheating on her which is an obvious example of lust which leaves her so distraught that she isn't even able to teach without making every lesson about how he did her wrong. Moving on to the third circle and the fourth chapter. The third circle of hell is gluttony and ha has an endless shower of rain and sleet pouring down on the damned souls as they're chased around by Cerberus who gnashes at them and tears them apart representing the endless excessive appetite and they're now the ones being devoured by the old three-headed dog. Uh, Dante and Virgil get caught in the rain a bit too because well the whole place is storming. And to get past Cerberus, Dante waits for his mouth to be open like, and throws dirt in them to distract him and scurry past, which is the funniest thing to me. I just had to mention it because like, what? Why was it that simple? Why have none of the gluttons ever tried something like that before? What is this cartoon nonsense? And also, speaking of cartoon nonsense, chapter 4. Songs of the Dark Lantern starts with our intrepid heroes being knocked out of the lift and soaked in a relentless downpour of rain. Hmm. Much like our circle there. And it's not like the unknown is a place with a ton of rain constantly just pouring down. So that is a very particular choice. As is the choice to have our boys and bird come to a tavern for directions, which is a place of feasting, drinking, singing, and the excess of partying. Did I mention a dog blocks their way into the tavern? Yeah, a dog blocks their way into the tavern before word pushes him out the door. A dog! I said dog three times, on purpose, because three-headed dog. Uh, the people of the tavern are very jovial and love making... They all love making songs to go with the bountiful food and drink all around them. Except nobody seems to ever be drinking and eating anything in the tavern. Kind of like they curse to be near food and drink without ever partaking. The only people ever actually eat in this episode is Fred the horse who licks lips who licks lipstick off of his lips, yeah, I think. And the beast who keeps being fed oil from those trees. And Fred the horse and the beast are both outside of the tavern, so, you know. 
The episode also displays the gluttony of the beast as you see his insatiable appetite at being fed by the woodsman only for him to ask which way the kids ran off to. The fourth circle of hell is greed and in this circle people who hoarded wealth or spent recklessly and frivolously are cast against each other in a massive sprawling eternal jousting match sort of using enormous weights to crush the other in like this twin seas of people. Their faces are so bashed in that when Dante asks Virgil if there's anybody he'd recognize Virgil just straight up says he doesn't know because everyone's faces are so badly smashed. He has no way of telling who they are. Come on. The punishment of constant, like, unnecessary fighting is supposed to symbolize the constant, reckless and unnecessary, obsessive chasing of money they engaged in in life. Greed is pretty plainly seen in the fifth chapter, Mad Love, less in the visual symbolic parallels we've seen in the other episodes and more that the entire plot's whole vibe is like the follies of greed. Wirt, Greg, Beatrice and Fred the Horse are all at Quincy Endicott's mansion, a building so large and labyrinthine that Quincy himself constantly gets lost in it and fears that he's going insane. He's a tea tycoon, a tea tycoon? What is a tycoon, Clyde? Is a tea tycoon who confesses that he's only in the business for the money in an attempt to fill the vacuum of loneliness in his heart. These are very clear examples of the greed that comes with attempting a monopoly and the consequences of making your whole life about this and about this greed, yeah. You choose yourself over people and opportunities for love to see people as tools and become lonely, you know, Scrooge style. Our travelers also engage in greedy behavior. They're in the mansion and lying to Quincy about their relation to him in order to find an opportunity to steal money from him instead of working for it or even just asking this insanely rich man for two cents for a ferry ride to get to Adelaide. And that fee seems strange and there's a reason for it. The fee to cross the river Styx in Greek mythology and have your soul transported to the land of the dead is one coin per person, so one for Greg and one for Word. Though, when they do end up getting the money, Greg just throws it into a pond and they have to sneak aboard the ferry anyway. And yes, the first circle of hell does actually have the river Styx in Inferno. And in Inferno it's portrayed as this filthy, muddy river where all those who are wrathful in life are punished. This isn't violence per se, but more like just general anger and vindictive behavior from people. And they're all thrown naked into the river, climbing on top of each other, crab bucket style, tearing and biting to try to get to the surface and slipping back down again, constantly bickering and drowning in filth which is symbolic of the way they tore down others with their rage and sullen behavior in life. Uh, at the end of the river is the gates to the city of Dis, which they see from the boat as a glowing red light in the distance, and the fallen angels who guard it wouldn't let them through when they got there until the heavenly angel comes down and threatens to smite them all if they hinder Dante and Virgil's path. So the parallel in Lullaby and Frogland, chapter 6 of Over the Garden Wall of the ride on the boat on a boat river is already pretty apparent, especially considering Dante and Virgil also don't pay for the fare to cross unlike um, every other depiction of the river sticks that I can think of. But also, once on the boat, they soon met with very angry ferry security. Angry. Wrath. Angry. Presumably they haven't. Presumably it's because they haven't paid the fare, but it's also possibly because Greg's frog is naked, which would ordinarily mean that he shouldn't be on the boat and should be wallowing in the river with the rest of the wrathful, and have to run and hide. When they're in disguise on stage, also they manage to make the crowd incredibly hostile and angry by knocking the bassoon player off the boat and causing the music on the ferry to stop. 
as the crowd calms down, Wirt starts playing the bassoon and they look off into the distance of the sun, which is reddish in hue and not dissimilar from the lights of the Tower of Dis. When they get off the ferry, all the frogs jump into a giant pool of mud on the riverbanks where some sink deep within. A pool of mud, guys. Come on, come on. Pool of mud. Okay, so earlier on, what I was saying about the circles of hell not always completely lining up with the episodes in Over the Garden Wall starts here because we sort of enter the sixth circle heresy at the end of Lullaby and Frogland instead of the start of chapter 7. You see, heresy, as defined in the old-timey sense, refers to people leading others away from the path of Christ by using deception or their own misguided beliefs. This commonly goes for people preaching doctrines that are not of Catholicism, such as pagans who try to convince others to be pagans, and witches, believing these people are turning others away from God's path and on a path of evil, which is sort of the way we mostly understand it today. But also, you, you might already know where I'm going with this with the initial definition. Because this is where we find out that Beatrice has been deceiving the boys about Adelaide and that she's no good witch of the woods but a creepy old lady looking for, ser for servants to stuff their heads with wool and do everything she says because, yeah, she's evil. And so she's been, so Beatrice has been leading the boys away from their path home and if you take the story to be an allegory for Dante's Inferno, it means interfering with a mission from God, or at least their true path. Adelaide is also implied to have been deceiving Beatrice about wanting to help her, and is, in my opinion, pretty clearly using her. Also, she's pretty clearly a witch, and witches are inherently heretical. So, what happens in the sixth circle? is these people are forced to lay in what are essentially burning coffins by the fallen angels where they burn to near death and broiled some more. I'm actually not sure what this is supposed to be symbolic of when it comes to the sin. Maybe let me know on Twitter or Podbean or something if you know. I don't know, so I'm just gonna move on. Um, in chapter 7 the ringing of the bell, it hinges heavily on curses and magic. Auntie whispers is controlling her adoptive niece with a magic bell that can command the evil spirit that Lorna's cursed with and misleads her into thinking that she's keeping Lorna in her house and controlling her for her own good when Auntie whispers could have easily banished the spirit long ago and uses it because she's afraid of losing Lorna's company. And this could maybe be taken as a kind of heresy too, as she's using deception to keep Lorna from doing what she wants, following her true path, you know. There's also those very clearly cursed or magical black turtles, like the one that the dog ate that turned him into an enormous demon wolf, that Auntie Whisper slurps down like oysters. And the way the candles are lined up all over the main room of Auntie Whisper's cabin also suggests some kind of spell. So, yeah. Let's get to the seventh circle of hell, Summer. Um, so, the seventh circle of hell is divided into three layers. And I want to preface this by reminding you all that this book was written in the 14th century. He's too dead for me to cancel. Also, what do you expect from an arrogant, pious, religious medieval man? Those times of the wild, wild west, bruh. The upper layer is for people who committed violence against others. You know, warlords, rapists, murderers. Reasonable enough. But the other layers get, uh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, the middle layer is for people who committed violence against themselves. Or, you know, self-harmed. Or died by suicide. Yeah. And the lowest layer of the circle is for people who committed acts of violence against God or the natural order. It'll be things like bestiality, death collecting for some reason, and uh, homosexuality. 
I should note that even the church took issue with this ordering because it's supposed to go from bad to worse. And like they hated the gays, sure, and frowned upon suicide, but they hated the idea of murder being a lesser crime even more. Dante just happened to die a year after he completed the trilogy before they could be like, bro? So the punishments for these layers goes as follows. In the upper layer, the souls are drowned in the river Acheron, which, no, the river Phlegathon, sorry, which is a boiling river of blood. And they're also getting shot at by centaurs who are trigger happy. They're supposed to just stop them from getting out of the river, but they're just shooting them all the time for fun. And it's such a hilariously over-the-top concept to me. I love it so much. Uh, the the middle layer is another dark forest like at the start of the thing but the forest is people as in the punishment here is to be turned into a tree that just keeps growing and harpies come to scratch and claw at you and nest in you uh, the lower layer is a clearing with all these people walking and wandering around the sand like groaning and shouting and the people lying down are the ones screaming the worst because the sands are all basically lit coals thanks to these flakes of falling like anti-snow they're like basically lava flakes that fall down and make the sand super hot yeah they're basically like if snow had inverted heat and also if you sit or lie down you're stuck like that for a hundred years which is a fantastically hilariously diabolical torture system its victims though uh, yeah some of them are questionable so in chapter 8 of over the garden wall babes in the woods we see Wirt and Greg in this little wooden box thing floating down a river and Wirt looking increasingly hopeless it's important to note here that literally every time a river has shown up in over the garden wall so far it has been at the time corresponding to when we would see one of Hell's rivers. This time it's Phlegathon. I mean, it's not the boiling river of blood, it's just a normal styles river, but like, give me a break. It's still pretty weird, come on. And besides, there's a much more undeniable and direct parallel to the second layer of violence. As those in the unknown who lose all hope are turned into edelwood trees that the beast feeds on. I feel like it's fair to say suicide probably comes with an overwhelming sense of hopelessness generally. I don't want to speak for people with suicide ideation as a whole, but I feel like that's probably a general thing at least. So the forest of suicide in the second layer of violence is its kind of Spider-Man meme-ish, you know? Also, during the dream sequence where Greg goes to Cloud City, which is very clearly heaven, the North Wind and he have this extended fight sequence, which is the first time any fight in Over the Garden Wall has been more than a kick and run. So I'd say that example of violence was definitely a very specific choice, especially, especially considering how over the blue, over the blue, <laughs> out of the blue it is. And I think it's meant to be symbolic of the circle of violence. Greg is able to enter heaven because besides never having lost hope, he also finally realized and rejected his personal flaws of ignorance and lack of consideration for others, while words still put all the blame on him on them being there squarely on Greg's shoulders, so he's still unable to leave the unknown. At the end of the episode, the beast takes Greg because he made a deal with him and Wirt runs after him out of the forest into what appears to be a clearing. The lowest layer of violence is also a clearing from the forest. And here you can see snow falling down heavily all around them, just like the lowest layer of violence has these lava flakes. And as he's desperately running and shouting, just like those punished in this part of the circle. The ground cracks beneath him and this is where we find out it's actually just a river that's been frozen and he drops, falling into the water. 
which would usually make the thing I said about the clearing nonsense. But at the end of the circle of violence, there's a waterfall that they have to like drop down through to get to the eighth layer, which kind of solidifies this really because he literally drops into the river at the end of the episode slash circle. Also, I actually just remembered this. There's this fish in a boat that's fishing for other fish, I guess. And I think he might be representative of the two mythical creatures the two mythical creatures you see in the circle of hell. You see first the fish is seen as the brothers are floating down the river at the beginning of the episode. And in the first layer where the river Phlegathon is, centaurs are basically hunting the drowning souls to make things even worse for them. Centaurs are human-horse hybrids, and that fish is clearly some kind of human-fish hybrid because it's in a boat, in a fi- with like a fishing rod, fishing for fish. I've I've said fish so much, and you see him again at the end of the episode pulling Wirt out of the river with his fishing net. As the episode ends, and another weird hybrid creature gets Dante and Virgil out of the seventh circle and into the eighth in the shape of some chimeric dragon-like creature with paws of a lion, body of a wyvern or dragon, and a scorpion stinger at the end of the tail, and the face of an quote-unquote honest man. So, yeah, there's that. Okay, okay, let's get into the eighth circle, the circle of fraud, named Malabolge. The sinners are divided by subcategory into ten trenches. They're panderers and seducers, excessive flatterers, simonists, fortune tellers, grafters, hypocrites, thieves, deceitful advisers, sowers of discord and falsifiers, which is a lot, so I'm only going to get into them as the relevance comes up. So, yeah, Malabolge is a very interesting, like, circle of hell i i really recommend it if you like ever get to reading the divine comedy i love that part so much it's so weird so in chapter 9 into the unknown is a flashback of how the two got um into the unknown on the nose i know it's halloween and reveals our heroes are fairly modern kids from like the 80s at the most Halloween is an interesting choice because everyone is wearing costumes and not being their true selves, which w- could be seen as a kind of fraudulence. And also, the seventh trench of Malabolge um, is the trench of thieves that have sinners being chased by various creatures, mostly serpentine ones with stingers, who, upon getting stung, transform in some absolutely weird way. Some turn into ashes, some turn into worms with legs, some turn into snakes before eventually turning human. And that also kind of calls back to these costumes that that are a more benign transformation. Also, on the Trench of Thieves tangent, Greg steals a rock from Miss Daniels and there happens to be two kids in robber costumes crossing the road. The 10th Trench of fraud is for falsifiers, which is basically people who straight up lied, made fake metals, coin forgers, people who verbally lied often or in big ways, and what is clearly the latter, constantly lying about his incredibly obvious crush on Sarah. The sixth trench is for hypocrites, which what also clearly is, wanting something to happen, but hates Greg when he takes the initiative by trying to give the mixtape cassette to Sarah. Also the punishment for this trench is to wear a really heavy robe. Funny that the Dragon Ball Z training method is a punishment in hell, but anyway. Maybe I'm reaching here, but... Yeah, I probably am (laughs) reaching here, but maybe his blue robe is supposed to be a parallel to that? Um, Also the fourth trench is for fortune tellers and sorcerers. I'm not exactly sure when witches go here or into the circle of heresy, but witches get punished here too. And when the when Sarah's friends are hanging out at the um, graveyard, 
it's understandably suggested that they're up to some witchy business. Also, there's a lot of running in this episode, like from the cops in the graveyard. The punishment for the first trench of seducers and panders is <coughs> like <coughs> Jason Vanderberger <coughs> is relentless running where you're whooped if you slow down at all. I have to mention that in Malabalgia, they there used to be a bridge to travel over the trenches, but it was destroyed when Jesus came down to take some souls to heaven. So now they have to climb over these walls to get to the next trench and the end of the circle. Wirt and Greg also obviously jump a wall to escape the cops, which is why I said it like that. I guess also he's trying to escape his embarrassment when Sarah sees his tape. Um, when Wirt wakes up from his flashback dream back in the unknown, he's in a small claustrophobic hole with dozens of birds. Beatrice's family, which is not unlike the third trench's punishment to be stuffed upside down in a small pit, feet sticking out that's suggested by Pope Nicholas III to actually be more of a tunnel with people stuffed below you, which is a horrific punishment actually. It makes it so much worse. Um, this is when he realizes how thoroughly that he's messed up and finally starts to recognize his faults, so goes out into the snow, which is now a blizzard, to find his brother. So, now we're at the final circle of hell, treachery, which is the sin of betraying the trust of someone. They're all submerged in the frozen lake here, which is the Lake Cocytus from Greek mythology, and like the last two circles, it's also subdivided. Familial traitors punished by being frozen in this lake with their head sticking out. Homeland traitors punished the same way, but this part of the lake is much colder apparently because they have purple skins. It's purple skin, but they're not wearing other skins also. That's their own skin that's purple. While like the familial traitor skin is just this really sickly pale color. And there's also this cold wind that starts from here that gets colder as they go. Then there's traitors of friends and guests. They're lying belly up in the lake so that when they start crying, the tears pull up on their face and turn to ice, eventually freezing their whole face in a mask of their own tears, which is so diabolical. Then there's traitors of God. These are people that are just completely submerged in this frozen lake like not even head sticking out nothing sticking out they're frozen completely and at the very center of hell is the source of our wind the giant wings of our boy lucifer portrayed as many-faced and enormous like basically mountain-sized they um dante and virgil climb up lucifer and jump a rock face at which point Dante sees they've crossed the threshold of Earth's gravity and it's flipped and now they're to travel through the river Leith which is a hole made when Lucifer fell from grace and crashed into hell with the ocean's water leaking through and when they swim through it they come out the other side at the bottom of Mount Purgatory. I'm simplifying, but this isn't about Inferno, it's about Over the Garden Wall. Read Inferno if you're very interested in that. It's pretty cool, the ending part especially. Now this final chapter, The Unknown, starts off with a blizzard, which is it very plainly parallels the freezing cold environment of Cocytus. Greg's face is also a sickly pale color as he does the tasks that the beast commands of him and he seems to be waiting for Greg to freeze to death. This is of course an act of betrayal or treachery as Greg is trusting the beast to show him the way home. Another act of betrayal is him tricking the woodsman into chopping up the edelwood trees to keep his daughter's soul alive in the lantern when it was actually the beast's soul in the lantern. And also he was unaware that the trees were other hopeless souls. And 
Of course he tries to make the same deal with Word. The blizzard is accompanied by very strong winds, which seem to be controlled by the beast as he uses a really intense gust to keep Beatrice from reaching Greg. This obviously parallels the strong Satan winds. The beast is also shown to be covered in faces, just as Dante's ver version of Satan is multifaced. After Wirt figures out that the lantern had the beast's soul, Wirt manages to free Greg and walk off into the night, and the next thing we know, Greg, Wirt, and Jason Vanderberger, the frog, are all face down in a river, and Wirt wakes up to swim and drag them to safety, murdering the way that Dante and Virgil swim through the river Leith to escape hell and gaze upon the stars once more. Meanwhile, in the unknown, after this, the woodsman defeated the beast, essentially bringing the salvation of the souls within who have already re recognized and rejected their faults, and allowing those inhabitants to be at peace with their loved ones, which you see in the closing montage of the show, with the woodsman being reunited with his daughter, Beatrice and her family being back together and human again, Miss Langtree back with Jimmy, which I'm not sure how I feel about, to be honest. So, yeah. That's the entirety of the theory as far as I can see it. I think I made a pretty compelling case for Over the Garden Wall being a reimagining of Dante's Inferno. I know I took some liberties here and there, but at least 70% of it had to have made sense, right? And... If you have problems with anything I said, or if you think I missed anything big, feel free to at me on Twitter at DNQ Podcast, or comment on the episode on Podbean, or join my Patreon and message me. You also get early access to the episodes there, link to the latter in the description. Also, I've decided to do Coraline for our next spooky season watch, which is another Stone Cold classic horror themed thing. It's kind of a horror and kind of not. It's like baby's first horror, but it's also a serious horror at the same time. Anyway, I'll talk about it more when we get to it. It's gonna be my first deep dive into a stop motion animation, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, stay tuned for that. This has been Drone and Quartered. Peace!